1: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today to be speaking to Dr. Matt Jordan about his fascinating, um, exciting, I think probably in some ways disruptive book, or maybe it's just about a disruptive thing, uh, Danger, Sound, Klaxon, published by the University of Virginia Press in 2023, reveals the story, as the title suggests, of the Claxon, the automobile horn, um, one of the first great consumer technologies, um, a big electrical innovation. I mean, there's really all sorts of things that are fascinating about this particular bit of technology. Um, so Matt, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast to take us through all things Claxon.
0: Very happy to be here.
1: (laughs) Before we get into the book, would you mind introducing yourself a little bit and explaining why this book?
0: Uh, So I am a a professor of media studies at Penn State University, and I have been increasingly interested in the ways in which uh, media... Uh, has mediated and kind of mitigated our relationship to sound in our world. So that the way that we use media uh, to let people know about things, but also use it to keep things from getting to us. This has been a, a, a long uh, project that I've been digging into, and it's in, particularly in relation to the question of noise and quietness. So I came to this book actually, uh, as often happens when you do historical work, and I do historical work, uh, by uh, by way of another story, which is that I started to work on another book, which was about the development of what I call commodity quietness, which is to say, um, in our modern world now, uh, you know, we have uh, the kind of normalized the idea that you shouldn't have to think about or hear any sound, you know, you just put on noise cancellation headphones, uh, and to do that. So I wanted to kind of trace the genealogy of that normative assumption that media can be used to keep the noise you don't want to hear out, right? So uh, this was a book that was kind of digging into how uh, cultures at the turn of the century responded to the question of noise as a a kind of cultural conversation, as a legal question, all of those things. And as I was doing the research, I kept coming across all of these different uh, notations of this uh, this this uh, new technology. Um, so, I was doing research about the French uh, assembly national stuff and the Bibliothèque Nationale over there, and I was you know kept coming across this w- this verb claxonner, and I was like, "Huh, this is interesting." And the more I started finding it, the more, and then I started finding it in different languages, and then I realized that it was in Arabic and Russian and Japanese. This kind of version of this brand. And so that became a story that I was fascinated by. How did this word become so pervasive? And then how did the technology that promoted this word become so dominant that it spread it across the world? And then why did it disappear at a very particular moment in time? Why did this sound that we associate with that brand go away? So that then became uh, a what I thought would be a really quick Uh, kind of cutaway book. And, uh, you know, uh, many years later, uh, (laughs) published this one. So that's how it came to tell the story.
1: That's fascinating. And you're certainly not the first author I've heard because I thought this would just be, you know, an article, 15,000 words. Oh, wait. Um, so not surprised to hear that um before we go further i know you actually have the sound of the klaxon available do we want to play that so people know what we're talking about sure
0: so this is what the klaxon sounds like it's this <laughs> so it's a it's a loud rasping sound which is actually created by a steel diaphragm with a lobed Uh, electric motor on it so that as the speed of the motor speeds up the sound goes up and then as it slows down it goes down so that produces the classic awooga sound that people associate with this with this technology
1: wonderful all right so we know how you came to the project some of the things you were interested in kind of exploring with the topic and crucially (laughs) what a klaxon sounds like um and what it's made out of I'd like to start um, perhaps a little bit before the klaxon itself, kind of the context in which it came up, because I came into this sort of being aware of what a klaxon was and aware it was, to some extent, kind of, I was a little bit aware of it was a big, being a big deal when it came up. But honestly, I hadn't really thought of it as being partially a big deal because it was an electrical technology, that that was sort of one of the things that was so radical about it. So can you explain to us, kind of take us back in time, Why were people so excited about electrical technology? Uh,
0: So let me let me say why they were so excited about this horn and as an electric horn. And but I'll, I'll, I'll tell a little story first about what the issue was with cars. So you know, I'm increasingly interested in our culture's response to technology by turning to a new technology to deal with the problem, right? So at the turn of the century, in the 20th century, the uh, m- most disruptive technology across the world was the automobile, All right, It was uh, changing the way that we dealt with time and space and uh, the way that people did things every day. But there were really no ways for people to know what this quick, you know, thing that could kill you was uh, doing in the streets, right? So, other forms of conveyance had their own distinctive way of letting you know where they came. And in many ways, this was just a uh, you know the the sound that the thing made. So, you know, in the turn of the century, streets didn't have what we think of them having today, which is rules, sidewalks for pedestrians, streetlights, for people to kind of cross it. It was kind of just open space that shared with horses, people, buggies, trolleys, you know, whatever was out there. And so the... At the beginning, they had to say, when this thing is coming at you, what sound is it going to make? That was the first big debate on this because they wanted it to be distinctive, right? So uh, horse carriages have carriage bells, trolleys have trolley gongs, so that when you're walking in the middle of the street, as people did, because there weren't really sidewalks in the same way that we think of them now, you would know what was coming right because the idea is that sound is something that gets your attention and you look to see what the sound is we're kind of hardwired to do it that way so the first sounds they you know first generation of cars they were trying out all different types of things you know some cars were uh, ran on steam so they thought huh let's let's use the things that work on steam engines versions of a steam whistle to let people know but that caused confusion right when you have a car coming at you and it sounds like a train your first impulse is to think why is there a train coming down in the middle of the street so what they had to do first was decide what the distinctive sound of a car would be, right? And so there were international conferences that did this. Uh, countries themselves did this. Localities did this. A lot of these things tended to be local decision-making uh, process that went on. So the first thing that they decided was that the distinctive sound uh, of, of uh, the car would be something that we associate now, like the bulb horn, all right? The honk-honk the uh, bu- bulb horn. Here, here would be an example of that right so this, this that's the local that that was the sound that was going to be distinctive of the car um but when more and more cars came into the streets and uh this is you know in the early days there weren't even really steering wheels there were two it was more like a boat where you had kind of levers that you pulled so it's hard to drive and honk one of those at the same time right so how would you deal with the increased number of cars in the street with a technology that required you to honk, honk at something. And again, honk, honk at something in the early days of driving meant whenever you did anything, right, you went, the law said at that time, if you went through a cross street, you needed to honk. If you backed up, you needed to honk. If you passed somebody, you needed to honk, right? So every time you changed directions, you needed to let people know you were coming by law. And so the as things got more loud, as more cars entered into the street, the question of utility became an issue you had to have louder horns first right so they turned to uh, instrument technology first to create more volume in the kind of squeeze bulb reed horn but then that became that the affordance of that technology didn't work all that well either so eventually the electric electrical thing was was there and the the electricity fascinated people because it, it uh, could do something at the same speed as a nerve impulse essentially so right and so our bodies are made of nerves and the, the kind of notion that as soon as you had uh, a, a an impulse to do something if you hit the button and it made a sound there wouldn't be no delay you didn't have to get your hand off the the lever or the wheel as eventually the steering wheel became more more uh, the kind of dominant mode of, of, of conducting this uh, those automobiles you could just press a button and it would immediately send out a sound that, and the, it would immediately send out a loud sound. So the first generation of electrical horns were were variations of the old squeeze bold horn uh, that used amplification of essentially a buzzer, right? So the way that doorbells work where it's uh, two uh, kind of alternating plates of magnets and it just thing goes back and forth between them and vibrates really loud. But that wasn't really... They burned out quickly. They didn't do well with the, the environment. So klaxon came on as this sound, this really loud, obnoxious, hellish sound that would be able to be done immediately at the at the impulse of a nerve. And then because of its volume could cut across the other industrial volume of the street. And so it was kind of noise as a problem to conquer the problem of noise and communicate and in, in, uh in the street so that's uh, that's a sense though of how electrical was so exciting is because again it was linked to the impulse of a nerve as soon as you had the idea it could then be communicated it would then be loud enough to be heard and to warn the people that you were coming
1: that's a very helpful context as well as of course the information about kind of just how many things were on the streets um, that people had to figure out i was sort of then little bit surprised to read that at least at first there was some sense that maybe the automobile could be a technology that solves the problem of street noise even though if you know just from the examples you've just given us doesn't seems like it's only adding to it why did people think maybe this could be a solution
0: well so part of again part of that is that there was a attempt in uh city governments and national governments to deal with the problem of noise on a kind of cultural level. And one of the ways that they started doing that was changing the way that they built streets, right? So if you've ever been to an old city like Paris and whatnot, you have cobblestones. So whatever is moving on cobblestones is going to make a lot of noise, right? It's going to be uh, you know, rattling and 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 whatnot, and horses' hooves make noise, and et cetera, et cetera. But when the automobile came along, it was a lot of the times it was on either these uh, macadam, which was a smooth service that they started using in the mid 19th century, but then eventually asphalt. So. If you think about what a car offered vis-a-vis a, a trolley or a, a horse carriage or horse hooves, it was uh, a, a rubber tires uh, on a asphalt street, so it could be in fact relatively quiet compared to those other things that made a lot of noise intrinsically in what it did. So, um, and at the beginning, there were also things like electric. Cars that were kind of competing for attention as well. So these are things that are quiet, relatively speaking, right? So again, the sound uh, of, of a combustion engine was noisier, but not as noisy as something else. So one of the ways that they sold people on the idea of the automobile was it was this uh, relatively quiet conveyance uh, device that could move people in uh, large numbers very quickly and very quietly. But again, the speed mixed in there with the quietness made the need for signaling all the more diff, uh, necessary because if the, uh, the the mode of conveyance didn't make any noise itself, then you absolutely had to have something that would communicate to people, hey, I'm coming, uh, look out.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, the kind of, the, the chaos sort of writes itself from everything you've been describing to us so far. You talk about, though, in the book, it wasn't just kind of a practical problem um, with practical solutions. And you sort of hinted at that already, right? This idea of kind of how do we manage the problem and what are the different solutions? How can we see a sort of ideological bent in some of the solutions developed to solve this signaling problem?
0: Um, well, I think it, again, has to do with the, one of the ideologies that I see as powerful and potent in our day. And as, a, as somebody who's interested in kind of in explaining the history of the present, this is something that was really important to me, which is that we have a kind of a technocentric way of dealing with the world. Right. So, you know, think of if you have a problem uh, today, there's, you know, where there's an app for that. Right. It's kind of the way we think about it so the solution to technology is to turn to another form of technology and in this case the solution to the disruptive technology the automobile was let's invent another piece of technology that is going to uh, solve this this solution solve the problem for us right not let's debate this let's figure out ways that we can each kind of live in each other's space but what's the most effective technology that will solve the problem that we have so this technocentrism i think is a very important kind of normalized ideology that we have in in our lives today. We almost always look to engineers to solve problems uh, for us because of this.
1: Interesting to see how kind of early this pops up. Um, So I'm glad you highlighted it in the book. Um, Now that we've sort of got an idea of kind of what the environment was that the klaxon came into, you've told us a little bit about kind of how it works, um, why it was exciting. To what extent was it? completely different from anything else on the market.
0: Uh, it was, it was, sorry, there's a, there's a great kind of apocryphal story that uh, it pops up early on, which is so that the the inventor of it was a guy named Miller Reese Hutchinson, who eventually became the, uh, the director of the Edison labs. Uh, and so he had worked with, Ed, he had worked on technologies before that had to do with sound. He got a kind of award from uh, Queen Victoria for, uh, you know, kind of creating something that help people, help deaf people, you know, hear things. So he was interested in in sound. He's a kind of a, went to medical school and was was interested in that. But then he also started working with Edison on the battery and and el- different types of electrical devices, right? So um, when he created this thing, uh, it was even louder. It was uh, kind of a brush, uh, kind of metal brushes against the diaphragm, which made it even you know more shrill. But, and then he took this and he started to, to sell it. So the apocryphal story is that he brought this to the uh, owner of the Lovell McConnell company and played it and scared the bejesus out of him, right? He scared him to death. The guy jumped out of his, his but he immediately saw the utility of this, right? Here is a sound that you can, with just the press of a button hooked up to a, you know, a nine volt battery, you can make this huge sound that would be, would be out there. And so... He said, let's figure out how to make that affordance, right? That technological, that volume question. Again, as more cars got on the road, that the more loud your horn was, the better off. And so that each year you'd see some of the competing brands kind of going for my thing is loud. Um, But this, uh, this, this kind of became... So the word klaxon actually is taken from the Greek word to shriek, right? So you can see the company really leaning in to it, but that became an interesting question for me. You know, we we think about sound kind of as almost like a raw thing that we have, but there really isn't any such thing as, you know, unculturally mediated sound. We all we learn to perceive things, and that also becomes the the part of the story is that the company realized we can tell people that the very thing that makes this noisy you know noise being kind of the way you define noise as unwanted sound could actually be a good thing right so the it's it's loud and obnoxious but the fact that it's loud and obnoxious means that nobody is going to be able to ignore it which will make everybody safer right so the company then said let's figure out a way to convince people that this sound is that we think is horrible is actually a good thing right so to make safety associated with that sound so that's how they started to to sell to sell it and then they you know again turned to another thing that was emerging at the beginning uh of that century which was this kind of new consumer technology uh kind of business that was turning to advertising as a, a way to kind of change people's perception of how it worked. So when I first took this horn out, they did it by way of things like uh, automobile uh, kind of association uh, kind of meetings, these kind of trade shows, which were a big part of spreading the kind of evangel of of automobiles around the world. And the way that it worked is they would just go and they would start hitting the horn in the middle of these huge trade shows, and everybody noticed, right? Everybody wrote about it, everybody talked about it, all the technology reporters, you know, this became the biggest thing because it was the loudest thing. And if you think about that, that also tells us a little bit about how what advertising is starting to do, the bigger, the louder the splash. You know, the, the the more attention you grab to to this thing, the more people are going to notice and that's, that becomes an opportunity for them. So again, you have the, the emergence of technology at the same time as people are starting to figure out how modern advertising is going to work. So part of the reason for why people got so excited about it was, A, nobody could not pay attention to it. That was a whole, you know, that's the affordance of the technology. That was its design. Nobody can ignore this thing but then they figured out a way to turn that into a good thing uh, and turn to modern advertising to do that.
1: That was one of the things that I was not expecting to read about, that kind of how much the Claxon was part of modern advertising at its beginning um, and was fascinating. I think this is probably one of the best moments to, of course, remind listeners that the book has way more detail than we're going to get into now. Um, and one of the bits of detail that, unfortunately does not translate to an audio medium is you included in the book a bunch of really cool advertising posters um that really effectively i found demonstrated kind of just how much they went this is here's how we're going to make this something that you want um rather than are freaked out by so i thought that was really effective and definitely want to let listeners know that that's there um but another piece that I was kind of not expecting to read about that also is very clearly part of how Klaxon became so dominant is the company's use, not just of advertising, but of law. Can you walk us through what the company did in terms of using different bits of law for different purposes and what the outcomes of it were?
0: Sure. Um, so, uh, again, noise has, you know, since the time of uh, ancient Rome, since Caesar kind of created noise ordinances, you know, that kind of forbid people to uh, shop makers and people who are, you know, had loud pe- pans and pots that they were selling to come in in the middle of the night because people needed sleep, right? So law has always been a way of especially ordinance law of how you deal with the question of sound. So but in in terms of the the claxon, they had to deal not only with ordinance law, how do we make this something that not only uh, will be legal because that was always a question too in bigger cities. Is it so- is something like this just too loud for us to 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 deal with? Uh, but then also in terms of, of of patent law, because again you're dealing with new technology, and uh, one of the things that Claxon was able to do is to is to is to deploy uh, 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 their lawyers to kind of give them a competitive advantage uh, in in the and then contract law and, uh, and, um, uh, antitrust law where, where all, all those things are important for the story. So I'll, 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 start a little bit with the, with the patent law, right? So, uh, there are all these fascinating cases and they had to do this uh, all over the world because again, law is usually locally determined, but in the, in American context, the patent law was of a variety that, uh, you know, the, at the beginning you you know you, you would have a, a diagram like right? a schematic an engineering schematic for something uh, people would know how it was how it worked but there was something that that, that eventually became uh, a legal technique they couldn't use uh, later on which is that you they could file for an injunction if any competitor kind of came onto the fore right um, and, you know, uh, Apple did this to Samsung way back in the day with a telephone with a with a smartphone. They they said, we have a patent on this square technology. And they were able to keep for about two years, keep, you know, the Android models from coming on to market through injunction. Claxon did this with anybody because it was pretty simple technology, right? You just have an electric motor hooked up to a battery that spins fast and some kind of of, uh, a, you know, trumpet horn. Uh, attached to the front of it so anybody who tried to do anything like that they would just slap an injunction on them and their competitors wouldn't be able to produce anything right so uh, they used an enormous amount of uh, of legal uh kind of war chest to do this but every every time they got uh got this uh got this thing going um, they, that gave them a kind of competitive advantage in the market as well. And that competitive advantage in the market was translated into contract law, right? So anybody who sold their products had to agree to a certain price point, And that was part of their national advertising strategy, right? That in a way, this this works like the franchise model that we've come to see now, which is that the national advertising is done and it's sold by local people who can both uh, localize or kind of localize the advertisement and, uh, and kind of just use whatever national law. But it has to be, the, the price has to be the same, right? Your Big Mac has to be the same wherever it is you're, you're selling that thing. So anybody who tried to undersell them, they would sue, right? They would slap an injunction. You're saying you're violating contract law and patent law and it would shut them down, right? So this allowed them to set the price very high to keep the competitors out of the technology uh, market that they were trying to dominate and uh, establish a kind of a way for doing this. And as they were successful doing it, they spent more and more money on lawyers, making sure that that competitive advantage they had maintained the same. So a lot of these cases work their way all the way through the Supreme Court's, you know, in terms of, of this type of, of legal decision-making where they at some point in the, in the, they were able to say that particular sound, even beyond the means that it produces is part of the, the patent law, right? You patented the sound. So again, this gave them uh, a incredible competitive exam uh, advantage against anybody who wanted to reproduce a similar type of technology. Uh, uh, and again, they were, it took them about, I don't know six years for the, to lose that legal advantage um eventually they did and people could undercut them in terms of making a product that was similar but by that time everybody called it a klaxon anyway and uh, and if this eventually led to them having to fight in terms of antitrust right antitrust law where uh the, the their competitor started to file lawsuits against them saying you know you can't control this this there's no, we can do something similar to this and this gives you an unfair econ, you know economic advantage and so that eventually became a thing but uh in terms of their legal maneuverings they had to all over the world again part of their sales was to work on city governments so uh you know since every city in america for example was deciding whether or not this would count as a horn, right? They said their law on a local level said cars must have a horn, right? So if you had a, got a car license, you had to have a horn and and uh, lights on your, your car. But they uh, – they, so they had to – for a while they had to say, well, the klaxon counts as a horn, right? And that was a – Meant they had to lobby tremendously to do this, and they had to do that all over the world. Then, so as they franchise things globally, and this was they're the kind of one of the prototypes of the modern technology company that spreads across the globe to sell the technology that will solve the problem. Uh, they used similar advertising across the globe, but then they had to do similar legal machinations across the gro- globe. Again, patent law was something that didn't translate from country to country, so they had to get lawyers on the ground in those countries to say, this thing is a horn, uh, this thing should be legal, uh, and uh, let's make sure that the lowest localities don't kind of uh, hurt our economic advantage within that. So their lawyers were very, very active, and everything eventually went in-house with them.
1: And as you said, even competitors ended up becoming known essentially as Klaxons, which I think more than anything else really just shows how successful this legal strategy and the advertising strategy both were. Um, this brings me, therefore, to kind of the bit about Klaxon history I did know coming into this book. Um, obviously, we have to talk about um, the trench warfare side of things. How did the Claxon become associated with this mass conflict?
0: Right. So, yeah, uh, you know, so by the time the, the uh, fighting in Europe started, Claxon had become an international brand, right, that they had used this kind of these same advertising that they would spread across the globe kind of through this globalization thing, right, that they would incorporate stories about people's utility of using this wherever their localities were at a particular turn in the road. You know, this will save you from getting killed type thing. And again, their advertising strategy that they, they moved toward was what we might think of as situational advertising, putting the consumer into a position where they have to make a decision that's going to be a life and death one. And the smart, the smart consumer, the smart subject out there is going to be the person who's going to choose the right technology, right? Because the technology you use says something about you. So they had... They had franchised this in, uh, in France, in Spain, in England, in Germany, in Austria, uh, producing these horns everywhere. And everywhere, competitors were also trying to get in on that market, which meant that by the time World War I came along, in countries that were all involved in World War One, you have factories that are producing these horns for cars, right? So you have capacity, then the same technological affordances that had made this attractive as a signaling device for cars, the fact that it does well over the noise of the street, for example, right? This is the, you know, one of their advertisements used pseudoscience and they started branding their their sound, their unique sound, as they saw toothed horn that would cut through noise, right? That's kind of a complete pseudoscience. That's not how science uh, How how science works of of acoustics, but that is how advertising works, right? It was a metaphor that that would allow people to say, this is the one that's going to cut through the sound that you're trying to compete with. That very thing made this very attractive uh, for war departments. So uh, as the war started, they started selling, uh, first they sold to the French Navy because they found that uh, you know, if you needed to be able to signal from one part of the ship to the other that a, a you know a German U boat was about to torpedo you, use this thing. They'll be able to hear you through the through the through the fighting, through the noise of industrial warfare. When they move to the trenches, then the trench warfare is essentially a very it was a sound driven war. People are underground; they can't see things. There's not a, there's no line of sight. So the question is then how do you communicate from trench to trench from when the war, when when the different things happened? So this became something that they turned to when warning people of a new uh, kind of modern warfare technique, which was gas attack, right? So uh, different, you know, when the Germans would, you know, lob a, a gas bomb in there, the way to communicate to people who couldn't see it was to send out the alarm and the alert. And again, since uh, France was making klaxons, they were all making also handheld klaxons by this time as well for cars like... um, like Ford, that didn't have alternators that created an electrical current. They had created kind of push-button versions of these things. And the first year of the war or so, uh, they were using all kinds of different sounding devices. Um, the, the British troops and were using uh, gongs and police rattles and all sorts of different things. But it was, again, just the same way in the street where if you have trolley gongs and bicycle bells and... Horse carriages and all these different things—you don't really know what's happening. So, there kind of the word went out. The training manual started to be written that if this particular thing happened, this is the sound you will hear, and that was a mustard gas attack, right? And mustard gas attack kills you. So the uh, if if, if I mean, they had to teach people to quickly grab their gas mask and put it on. So behavioral conditioning started when people were being trained to go abroad, you know, to to fight. Was was when you hear this sound, that means there's a gas alert, you have to put your mask on. So when the trenches trench warfare, you know, arrived and it started you deploying the klaxon and French troops did, British troops did. Then all of a sudden you have this association th- that for years, the company had been trying to associate the sound with safety being a sound that people would want to hear because, you know, you're keeping your the, the neighborhood safe, et cetera, if you're using this. All of a sudden that brand association, that sound association started to shift. So you literally have stories of people returning home from the front, walking down Madison Avenue and, and Broadway in New York Hearing a truck come by with a klaxon horn and diving for the ground, right? This post-traumatic stress becomes a big thing. It's called battle fatigue in World War One, but it becomes a thing. And so that sound then becomes something that, for the care of the troops after the war, you have to you have to uh, do away with. That became something that cities became very. Uh, concerned about was that association. The company couldn't control it by this point, right? It was it was out of their their out of their control. Not as no matter what advertising they tried to do after the war to change that brand association. When people heard the sound of a klaxon tech, uh, horn, whether it was made by klaxon or their many competitors by this point, they heard uh, gas alert. They heard trench warfare. They heard death, and that wasn't that something that people particularly wanted to be projecting on their own horns, on their own cars. So this became a real struggle for different companies that by now were producing klaxon technology.
1: So speaking of that, what happened to these companies then?
0: Uh, Well, one of the things that happens to them is what you see in any technology sector, which is a lot of consolidation right? Um, you know, that we always think that uh, capitalism is about um, uh, competition, but capitalism is also about death to competition. And and what happened over time was that, you know, not only were the bigs uh, putting other smalls out of business, but they were also buying them up. And so that this was happening in the automobile industry as well, right? the, the uh, In the early days, there were hundreds of automobile companies. And in fact, one of Claxon's advertising uh, kind of strategies was to make their car the f- official factory uh, installed model and that you know literally telling people check under your hood when you go to your auto dealer to make sure it's a klaxon. but slowly but surely you see in the in, in the American automobile industry a consolidation these smaller brands getting bought out by bigger brands and just being brought under a great example of this would be General Motors right the kind of the Alfred P Sloan model for for GM was essentially to have Pontiac and and uh, Chevrolet and uh, Cadillac, all of these things become part of the GM model. And it was cheaper for them to essentially bring in all of these uh, kind of technologies as well for signaling. So uh, first you see uh, like United Auto, uh, which eventually became kind of what the Delco Rimi brand uh, that still exists in at least in American context. Um, they started buying out these horn companies and, you know, again, that would make the stock prices go up. The business model was kind of similar to how we see mergers and acquisitions now. Um, and so companies like the Jackson automobile, uh, uh car, car horn companies, which made a, a um, the Spartan horn and the the Longhorn, all of these various uh, other things that were making Claxon like technology eventually got bought up by these kind of uh, kind of umbrellas that were consolidating the industry. Eventually, General Motors bought uh, the Claxon uh, kind of all of these conglomerates and brought them all under control. And, and over time, there where there were many, there are now only a couple, Uh, of horns, so that that's partly what happened to those companies is that they just got bought out you know the same way if you look at our internet technology world now you know uh we think of uh our uh companies like meta facebook as great innovators but they're they're not really they're just they they buy everything. They buy anything that looks like an interesting technological affordance that they would like to control. They just buy it and bring it under Facebook. And so similar things were happening in the industry, uh, in the automobile industry at the time. And so what happened to most of these companies was they, they either got put out of business by the big or they just got folded into the big.
1: Yeah, as we said, there's a lot of parallels we can see from the companies we're more familiar with today. Um, Speaking of kind of the automobile industry, I'm wondering if you can maybe tell us a bit, kind of like you did at the beginning, about the bigger context. It's not just the klaxon. You discussed at the beginning that um, one of the reasons there was so much noise is because cars had to signal every time they did anything, really, um, all sorts of times that Today we wouldn't expect um, a horn or any sort of noise to be used for. You talk about in the book kind of this same post-war era is when a lot of things not to do with sound were happening around the regulation of automobiles. And obviously that had a bit of an impact for the sound side. So can you kind of walk us through what's happening more broadly with automobile regulation and the sector?
0: Right. So um, uh, again, so slowly but surely, the the you know the, the anti noise movement was a mo- you know something that you see end of the nineteenth century. Increasingly, these anti noise societies cr- creeping up all over the world. Right uh the the league for the suppression of unnecessary noise is what they were often called. And so this is a kind of a growing cultural discourse that is happening at the same time that Claxon's trying to convince everybody that the best way to be safe is to be the loudest person there, right? Which works okay when you've, you know, got a handful of of cars in the street and a little bit over time. But in the after the war, you see an explosion of the automobile industry. This is really when Henry uh, Ford figures out kind of that uh, assembly line production, the number of cars being produced just skyrockets. You also get that in consumer financing that allows them to just basically tell, convince everybody that you can't be a modern person without having a car. So any of these devices And small scales are okay when you start to put scale any of these things to the amount of automobiles that you start to see on the roads everything becomes a problem so very quickly then the dominant technology of the time which was the klaxon right that was now the kind of standard Technology installed at the factory on any car, no matter where you were in the world, unless you were in places where that had been made illegal, like in France. And we can maybe get back get to that as part of part of this. Um, but uh, so that that question of scale, then that question of of uh, putting things in, and that meant that the law had to start changing in terms of the times when you signaled, right? And so these debates about what's the best way to regulate the automobile, also started to deal have to deal with this anti-noise problem, right? Because certain cities like Chicago would be a great example of a city that had a very big uh, anti-noise league and a very powerful kind of uh, constituency of legislators that were really arguing for that. So they were really the first to ban the klaxon and return to the old bulb horn. So at the time, klaxon had a strategy where they were going around city government by city government, and they were you know, kind of touting this as an advertising strategy, Seattle adopts the, the same the safe signaling legislation, right? Uh, but which was to say, Klaxon should be the standard sound for everything, right? But slowly but surely, cities that where you have a lot of population density, and you have this explosion of cars, say, huh, if we tell people they have to, every time they make a right turn, they have to honk, uh, blow the horn. Every time they back up, they have to do the horn. Every time they go through a crossroad, we have to change the horn. That doesn't scale well, right? So they started to say okay, in certain cities, uh, you have to use something along the lines of, of the honk honk horn, right? But let's also do other things. Let's turn to optics, let's turn to sight signals to manage the problem of traffic. Right. So after the war, you see across the globe a kind of a reaction by cities dealing with the increased scale of automobiles, a way to turn to other forms of communicating in traffic to solve this problem of noise. Right. So, again, when the scale is small, Klaxon's fine when there are, you know, 20,000, 30,000, 100,000 more cars every year clogging up narrow city streets and everybody's honking all the time. This sounds a lot like trench warfare, right? It sounds a lot like everybody's just hammering the the, the car signal. So they started to do things like uh, timed uh, traffic signals, right? And then early nineteen twenties, you start to see different cities adopt uh, time delayed traffic signals with a you know different red on the top and you know green on the bottom uh, variations of that. Over time, this gets more standardized internationally. But they're saying, let's not, and then we'll tell people, you can't honk your horn in certain spaces, right? So one of the things these anti-noise leagues did was they had, uh, you know, campaigns internationally. For example, if you go by a hospital, this should be a quiet zone, right? Those those veterans from the first world who needed quiet to reestablish their equilibrium after a traumatic war, they needed quiet, right? So you would say it is illegal in this place to honk your horn at all. And then they said, it is illegal to honk your horn after 7 a.m. at night until 7 a.m. in the morning. And then they, you know, again, that became the legislative and the governmental response to this was to figure out different ways to communicate in traffic. So the moment of, you know, the early automobile where every time you did anything, you had to let somebody know. Uh, Over time, you start to see things like traffic lanes and and traffic signs and all of these things that are now uh, optical signaling uh, rather than sound signal. It just became a different way of responding to this. And again, people learn how to do these things over time just by practicing them in their everyday life, and they become normal uh, fairly quickly. But you had this huge push in terms of political um, and legislative against uh this technology right it became post-war it became the thing that every legislation that was anti-noise directed would be signaling out as the example of the thing that we need to figure out a way to 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 uh to silence right so barcelona london etc etc all went after taxi drivers who had these things and said nope you can't use that anymore and so again little by little across all these different governmental and juridical platforms and, and spaces, you see legislation or laws and policies shifting away from sound signaling, away from this idea that you have to have the loudest thing in order to be safe toward other ways to deal with it.
1: Absolutely fascinating. Um, and again, kind of with that background of World War One, um makes a lot of sense, but also uh given kind of how dominant the company was, is quite a sort of sharp rise and fast fall. Uh, So thank you for taking us through kind of both pieces of that. Um, Before I ask you my final question, I've obviously learnt a number of things from reading the book, things I wasn't maybe expecting. Is there anything that you came across in the research or writing of this book that surprised you?
0: Uh, well, a lot. I mean, all this was was new to me, and I think it just tells us that we often take for granted our sound environments, you know, as being normal, and and actually they're the product of a lot of cultural deliberation, a lot of editorialist moralizing about because sound becomes a kind of a moral thing for us, right? You know that that we when something disturbs our sleep it's not just a question for it's it's it becomes a you know you you have disturbed me i need i deserve my quietness and so you see the way in which things that we might take for granted are actually these kind of rich have a rich history of kind of processes that they have to go through to get to the point where where you think about them right and you know so for example uh, in terms of the uh, the the horns that we have today are all essentially what the General Motors, by now, which by the mid twenties, which owned Claxon, started to say, "Huh, we like this brand, Claxon, because it's a worldwide brand. It is something that everybody understands around the world. It's a word that everybody uses. So we'd like to keep that, but we have to change the sound. We have to change the the sound association towards something that people aren't repelled by, for a number of ideological reasons. So they figured out a uh, dual." Tone compressed air horns. And that's essentially what we still have today, right? And that came because they wanted to f- figure out a way to save the brand name and shift the association. So it's the Honk Honk horn, which sounds a lot more like uh, what people had, uh, you know, at the very beginning of this when the bulb horn was out there, uh, that isn't as utilitarian, that has some kind of musicality to it. You know, in the early days, there was a lot of debate about. So it, the an, analogy would be like if you, you know, bump somebody when you're walking to them, do you say, excuse me, or do you just kind of plow on through, right? So Klaxon in the early days was like, you just plow on through. You just let them know, and if you hammer this thing, and it, they can hear you a mile away coming, and that'll keep everybody safe. But over time, it moved back toward the way that... We deal with people in the spaces that we often occupy, which is that you you should be more polite. You should do something that is more musical, less utilitarian. So that was that was something that interested me was that these responses are really kind of about how we negotiate our a- everyday life, um, and you know how we we learn to hear things as noise, how how we learn to hear things as as being uh, advantageous, uh, and it's really about you know, these conversations that are going on and all these different, different levels to, to do that. So the, one of the, one of the chapters that I I deal with the the sound associations is that, you know, and this happens, the, the, the time period for this book is, you know, pre sound film, right? So there's not a whole lot of uh, data available to see exactly, you know, in the sound design of these films, how was this used, which would tell us, but You know, there it did start to get integrated into recorded music at a certain point in time. That fit the 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 kind of, or or that uh, listening to that shaped the story that I told. Because, uh, you know, that the a lot of songs started deploying the klaxon horn at times when they wanted something to be obnoxious, either something that disturbed people, which is the Jelly Roll Morton song "Sidewalk Blues," the the protagonist is just walking down the street and this horn kind of you know rattles him um, or Eddie, some of Eddie Cantor's music from the late 1920s that the, the horn sound was not only used in the street but also became something that was used in media as well to signal a certain association uh, a, a certain way of looking at the world. So the, I guess the, the takeaway for me is that a lot of the stuff we take for granted, in our in our worlds the worlds we live in are actually things that are, are are the product of a lot of people trying to convince us over slowly over time that these are this is the best way to regulate our life world and uh that also tells us that these things that we think are completely natural we can also undo them if we put enough uh pressure on uh, on the on the on the market you might say but also just on uh and through our conversations and deliberations on these things
1: one of the reasons we're so happy to have you here to tell us all about this and um, for exactly that reason. And um, so thank you for sharing that with us. Before I let you go, I do have just a final question. And um, the book is obviously out and available for people to read. Is there anything you might be working on now that it's done, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this exact topic that you'd like to preview for us?
0: Uh, well, I'm I'm I'm, uh, I, I'm I always have my hands in a, a lot of different Pots, just so to speak, but um, the you know as I as I began the by talking about how I had had this other book that I had in mind, I'd like to write that book. I've I've published one piece which essentially lays out the plot of this kind of emergence of of commodity quietness, right? Technologies that are quiet technologies that we get sold to deal with the problem of noise in our world, right? Whether that's air conditioning units architectural design noise cancellation headphone etc cetera, etc cetera. managing our sound environment through media so this is a book that I you know was half had half done when I started to turn to this so I'd, I'd like to finish that one uh, but then I'm also turned to uh, I'm working on a, a uh, different uh, different spaces where we see the imprint of technology on the way that we manage everyday life in one of the Ones that I'm interested in the most now is just how the noise of media, you know, signal to noise ratio, thinking about it that way, is something that is increasingly a problem for democracy. So I run a thing called the News Literacy Initiative that is trying to give people ways to manage the the kind of uh, noise that keeps us from deliberating about how we can be more purposeful and uh, solve problems together
1: both very cool projects thank you for sharing them with us um, and while you're off working on them of course, listeners can read the book we've been discussing, again titled Danger Sound Claxon: The Horn That Changed History, published by the University of Virginia Press. Matt, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast
0: So happy to be with you